Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Jonathan Ames on the re-release after 20 years of his second novel, The Extra Man. Jonathan Ames is the author of nine books, including Wake Up, Sir, and You Were Never Really Here, both published by the Pushkin Press. He also created the hit HBO comedy Bored to Death, starring Ted Danson, Zach Galifianakis and Jason Schwartzman, and Blunt Talk, starring Patrick Stewart. He has fought in two amateur boxing matches as the Herring Wonder, and normally lives in Los Angeles, and... Today we're going to be talking about Jonathan's book, The Extra Man, which was first released 20 years ago and is re-released now again by Pushkin Press. Um, Jonathan, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. But going back to that blurb, I want to talk about the boxing. Mm -hmm. Why boxing? How did that end up happening? Well, in 1999, I was living in downtown New York uh, City in the East Village, and I was somewhat known as a performance artist, along with being a novelist, and I had a column in a free newspaper called the New York Press, and I, and I would perform these sort of monologues, and in one of the monologues I talked about boxing and, um, you know, and my fascination with boxing, and then this other performance artist challenged me to a boxing match, and he was known as the Impact Addict, and he had once jumped off a six-story building dressed as Maria Von Trapp, and he was outraged that I was going around downtown New York talking about boxing as if I was some kind of great boxer. And he, he was a bit of a macho fellow. So he challenged me to a boxing match, and I was like, all right, I accept, and I'll call myself the Herring Wonder. I, I came up with it right in the moment. At the time, I was eating a lot of herring. There was a, a herring store near me, and I saw the herring as a fish that would give me great strength. It's low on the food chain, doesn't have a lot of mercury, but has all the essential oils, and it's very good for you. And so, and then I thought I'd have herring breath in the ring to further repel my opponent. So we had this incredible fight in 1999 in front of 600 people. The artist Matthew Barney was one of the judges. And uh, I took a terrible beating, though. I trained for two or three months for the fight, but I got my nose broken in the fight, probably got a concussion. And then uh, eight years later, though, I was challenged again by a publishing house. I, I don't know which one it was now. Uh, on behalf of a Canadian writer who was coming to New York promoting a book called The Fighter. 
That fight I did win. It was against a very nice rider named Craig Davidson. It was more of a gentlemanly bout, whereas the first bout was a bloody, brutal, somewhat nasty, sadistic affair. So that was my brief foray into boxing, and it's good to put things like that in the bio. It always catches people's eyes, but I'm, I'm retired from the ring. Well, taking us back to the period of time more than 20 years ago when this book mm. was gestating mm-hmm. as well, the world of boxing also sort of like comes out of a period of time when you were basically struggling to write this book, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, this was my second novel. My first book was published in 1989. It's almost 30 years ago. I don't feel old, but I'm, you know, I'm 54, so it's weird to say things like my first novel published 30 years ago. It's like what I, I'm, I can't be more than 19. How is this possible? But yeah, I many authors struggle with writing a second book. You know, there's a, you have a greater consciousness. Oh, you put something out in the world, people respond to it. And uh, I needed to find something I was in love with to write about. And eventually, I met this eccentric older gentleman uh, who became my roommate. I realized he is something I'm in love with, not a romantic love, but just as a figure. And so I began to create a character based on him and also New York City of that time, which was very pre-gentrification. It was a much rougher town and maybe more interesting But yeah, so I I spent four or five years working on this book. And before that, there had been two or three years of not being able to really write much of anything. So this book came out in 98, nine years after my first novel. So that was a kind of a long stretch to go. We'll come back to the, shall we say, more autobiographical elements of it Mm -hmm. in a moment. But before we do, how would you describe the book? Well, um, I guess to use a literary term, it's very much a building's roman. It's about a young person who comes to the big city to find themselves and to learn about themselves and maybe learn about life. Because the narrator of the book is a young writer named Lewis Ives or someone who wants to be a writer. And he moves to New York City and begins to really experience life and so it's very much about their friendship and I I I wanted it to I was obsessed at the time and as is the narrator with the idea of the young gentleman so which I had read about I felt I had read about in mostly English novels whether it be Somerset Mom or Evelyn Waugh or P.G. Woodhouse and so the character wants to be sort of like a young gentleman out of an English novel someone who wears sports coats and dresses properly. And and so I I think in a sense I wanted the book to have an old-fashioned feeling. And I kind of set it up structurally a little bit like The Magic Mountain in that The Magic Mountain had many chapters with sub-chapters with little titles. So I set up the, the structure of the book like The Magic Mountain, which was another story of a young gentleman, Hans Kastorp, who goes to you know a Swiss sanitarium for you know to visit his cousin who's undergoing a cure for tuberculosis and ends up staying there seven years. But my character was a little bit of a Hans Kastorp, you know, an observer, someone who ventures out into the world. Let's explore this idea of the young gentleman a bit more then, because as you said, Louis is is he reads those books. He's obsessed mm. with that world. He's right. he has this sort of sensibility. In fact, widening that out before we talk about those types of books. This book is it's explicitly set in 1992. It says that mm-hmm, in the mm. narrative. Right. However, it could actually it feels like it could be set at any time in the 20th mm. century. Really, mm-hmm, it has mm. that it has that sort of feel. So, like, a let's talk about that idea, but also then bring in some of the other books that 
mm. are an influence on it. Yeah, well, for the most part, I like to try to write in a timeless way. You, you know, I, I don't put necessarily a lot of uh, products in my book like, uh, you know, Coca-Cola or an Apple computer, these sorts of things that are so of a period and might be very even more ephemeral than life itself. I mean, life is ephemeral. But I guess I said it in 1992 to maybe maybe some of the politics of New York are discussed and politics of the time. Uh, Bill Clinton had just been elected president, so the characters talk about Clinton a little bit. Donald Trump is mentioned. In fact, I might read a little passage about Trump. So it's a little bit of that time, but like you said, I, I think... Other than the absence of cell phones, you know, it's uh, hopefully doesn't feel like, oh, why should I read this? It's all about 1992. As for the other books that influenced it, you know, it has been a while. But like I said, The Magic Mountain, uh, during the writing of it, I also uh, read both books one and two of Don Quixote. And so I think the idea of an outrageous character like a Don Quixote, slightly mad, was a big influence on my creation of Henry Harrison. And then also that friendship of a Don Quixote and a Sancho Panza is very similar to my Henry Harrison and Lewis Ives. So um, Don Quixote was an influence. So normally at the end of the show, I would ask you to, to read a section, but you've got a few mm -hmm. selections. So mm -hmm. should we do one now? Uh, sure. Well, here's one. So and let me put on my reading glasses purchased at a bookshop, which is kind of, I think, good for reading glasses. Um, Are they women's reading glasses, though, like Henry Harrison? Um, purchased? They could be. So, I, you know what? I didn't ask. And um, someone told me that those are very feminine looking, Jonathan. But I was like, oh, gee. Well. Anyway, so this is just the scene. Uh, Henry and Lewis at this point are roommates, have been living together a few months, and they you know, often socialize in this very tiny, dirty apartment. So here's a little passage, and Lewis is the narrator. The next day was New Year's Eve, and it snowed. We stayed in all afternoon and watched a series of Danny Kaye films on the classic movie channel, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, Court Jester, and the Inspector General. Henry warmed up some apple juice on the stove and added rum, and we sat on the two couches and got drunk. I said to Henry, do you think we drink too much? Men face reality, women don't. That's why men need to drink, he said. That sounded like a good maxim, so I enjoyed my drink and the movies. And it turned out that we both loved Danny Kay. This made me feel happy. I kept an accounting of all our similarities, like money in a bank. After the second Danny Kay movie, Henry said, whatever happened to Danny Kay? It's strange. He just disappeared and it was before AIDS. You mean Danny Kay was gay, I asked? Of course, said Henry with annoyance. He and Olivier were lovers. Olivier, too? Why don't you know these things? Asked Henry, exasperated with my innocence. I'm not an expert like you on the sexuality of 20th century figures, I said, fighting back. You don't have to be an expert. Olivier was British, and the British are all homosexual because of public school. They never really get over it. I know, you've said that before. Well, some things need to be reinforced. I can't imagine Danny Kay and Laurence Olivier, I said. Oh, yes, said Henry with assurance. Opposites. I tried picturing them in bed. Who played the woman, I asked, phrasing my question in 19th century terms that I thought would appeal to Henry. Danny Kay, I imagine. He could do a lot of accents. That way Olivier could have a different woman every night. 
So that's a little passage. I hope it's not offensive to anyone English out there, which might be most of your <laughs> listeners. And also, Henry is politically incorrect. So again, if that's offensive in any way to anyone of any sexuality or gender, I apologize. But he's an outrageous character and uh, doesn't mean to cause pain. Well, by way of talking about Henry Harrison, the character in the book, tell us something about this real person that you lived with who was who he was based on. Well, he was, um, I have to say, it's a very close portrait. Um, he was a playwright, rather broke, in his 70s, um, but he was full of vitality and madness. Uh, he was... A good-looking man, but sort of falling apart. And he was uh, an unpaid escort to many older ladies, kind of a, you know, a lunch companion. He would take them to plays. And that's where the phrase, the extra man, comes from. Because in upper-class New York society, there are more women than men because women live longer. And so sometimes at a dinner party, you might need an extra man to keep things boy, girl, boy, girls, because so many the, there were so many ladies who had been widowed. So, you know, he was an extra man. And they were also sometimes known as walkers because they would walk the older ladies into lunch or to parties or to, you know, Broadway shows. But Henry looks down on the walkers a bit. Uh, a little bit, you know, because he, he likes to think that he's more than an extra man. In fact, at some point he goes, I'm more than extra. I'm essential, you know. But but the truth is he was a walker and an extra man, but he also was a playwright and he, you know, he didn't want to seem like a total freeloader. But it did provide him with a social life and he could eat a better quality of food because these ladies tended to be well off that he, you know, was squiring around. And then sometimes in real life, if he couldn't, take one of them out, I would take them out, you know, to substitute for him because he didn't want one of the other older gentlemen to maybe sneak in and become a favorite. So he would send me quickly as the last minute replacement rather than have them call someone else. And he has all of these sort of outrageous opinions, like, for instance, that women shouldn't be educated. And yeah. this is the right. early 90s, even right. then that right. was um, considered somewhat outre. Yeah, and I, I think also the real person and Henry, he liked to say things that were outrageous and he sometimes knew that they were outrageous. I think the line is, I'm against the education of women. It affects their performance in the boudoir and uh, the kitchen maybe. I, I don't know. Maybe it's something better than that. But um, Oh, and hampers their cooking ability. It affects their performance in the boudoir and hampers their cooking ability. Yeah, I mean he's a throwback and as we see, you know, this, especially in the States, you know, uh, we're having such a turnover from males of this mindset. So there's a, a shifting in consciousness occurring on a societal level, but it's a, causing a lot of turbulence, obviously. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listed to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Jonathan Ames, and we're talking about his novel, The Extra Man. And Jonathan, the story, Louis frequents a bar in the Times Square area of mm. New York quite frequently called Sally's, mm. becomes sort of transfixed with it, and it's a transsexual bar. And I understand this was also a real place. Yes, uh, and it's interesting that you use the word transfixed. Um, yeah, you say Louis, I say Louis. You say tomato, I say tomato. Uh, Louis does sound better. But, <clears throat> um, yeah, along with exploring the world of Henry and these older ladies, he's also exploring the world of Times Square and trying to understand his own place in the world. Is he a young man? Does he want to be a young woman? He's very much an unformed thing. Perhaps we should say why he's in New York in the first place. Yeah, well, he he's in New York. He was a... He was teaching in a middle school, probably 12-year-olds in New Jersey, and one day in the teacher's lounge by himself, a, a colleague's bra was hanging, or brassiere was hanging out of her bag. She had switched outfits to go play tennis, and somehow the brassiere with its uh, hooks got uh, stuck to the cuff of his pants as he walked past her bag, and the bra got yanked out, and he was mesmerized by it. And in a f- moment of lust and confusion, he slipped the bra on over his tweed coat. And unfortunately, the head of the school came in right at that moment as he was looking at himself in the mirror. And so it wasn't explicitly stated that he was fired for playing with this bra, but he was fired. He felt ashamed and humiliated. So he left New Jersey and living in the very quiet town of Princeton, which would be like probably in Oxford or Cambridge, and moved to New York as he says, to find himself and to get a grip on his sense of self and identity. So Sally's? Yeah, so Sally's was a real bar, uh, doesn't exist anymore, hasn't for a long time. But Times Square, you know, for many years, though being the centre of New York City, was just filled with, you know, maybe hun- I, I almost say hundreds, if, but, you know, or at least a hundred or more 
peep shows, sex clubs, pornographic theaters, and then also street preachers and a few regular stores here and there. But it was really like just a not quite a red light district. It was some kind of porn district, but it was right where the main bus station was. It was where the New York Times was. It's uh, Times Square where people would watch the, you know, the ball fall on New Year's Eve. And anyway, in the midst of this was a bar called Sally's where transsexual prostitutes and, you know, now maybe you'd say transgendered, but it was back then, I guess we'd say transsexual prostitutes would gather. And then the men who were interested in them would also meet there. And it also would be a place of just dancing and, you know, probably like Paris's burning sort of shows and drag shows and beauty pageants. And so Lewis is kind of fascinated by this world and begins spending his nights there talking to the ladies of this bar and becoming friends with them and falling in love with some of them in a way. And so this is a world that you were fascinated in yourself at that time. Um, I was, yes, fascinated by Times Square. It, You know, as a young man in his late 20s, confused and strange and odd and a sort of observer, kind of like a... You know, the narrator. I wanted originally one of the influences for the book was uh, the Berlin stories by Christopher Isherwood, which became the basis for Cabaret. And I think his original short story was I Am a Camera. And so I, wa- I saw myself as an observer. And so I went into these worlds. And I had been told by a writer, find things you're in love with, fascinated by. And he's also said, writers hang out. That's how you learn about things. So I began to hang out in this world. And I saw. And, I, and in some ways, I guess it was somewhat prescient. I, you know, I saw the transgender community as uh, there was a shift going on of, you know, maybe away from binary thinking uh, in some of the outer edges of society. And now it's actually become much more mainstream. I don't know where human beings are going in terms of gender and male and female, but I was uh, intrigued by the intersection there. And of course, this has been going on for, you know, thousands of years. You know, in mythology, you had people who were man and woman, you know, Tiresias, you know, in Native American culture, you had the people that were considered both male and female. And but this was a this was very much for me. And as for Lewis, the narrator, it was a little bit like being in Berlin in the 30s, you know, outre, risque, um, I can, what other French words, you know, but uh, just full of life and sex. Should we have another selection from the book? Um, sure. Um, well, this one has a little mention of Trump. So uh, Henry went off to Palm Beach, where we know Trump has a place, but this was in the early 90s, and he comes back from the season in Palm Beach. Where so he all goes the, down there for the winter. Basically. Yeah, where all, all the, rich, the rich ladies are, but he's come back, and now he's living again with Lewis. I woke Henry at seven, and I was very surprised, but he didn't put up much of a protest, despite only sleeping for a few hours. When I came out of the shower, he was putting on some music for dancing. Thank God I've come back to New York so I can exercise, he said to me when I came into the kitchen. Didn't you exercise in Florida, I asked. I had no time. Something was always going on. It's very competitive. Trump tried to break in again. He threw a big party at Mar-a-Lago the night of the Red Cross ball. Said he was going to have beautiful models. They were nothing but prostitutes. And then at the end of the party, they did the inevitable jumped into the pool. So he's finished for another year. Too vulgar. 
You couldn't go for a walk in the afternoon? I didn't want to be in the sun. I'd only do my exercises after five o'clock. I was invited to play tennis, but no one wanted to play after five. How did you get so tan? I was in the ocean a few times to kill the fleas, but that was it. I wore white gloves to protect my hands from the sun, but then I lost the right one. Had to keep my hand in my pocket, which isn't very attractive. So anyway, Henry had gotten a case of fleas in New York, and so Florida and the ocean hopefully cured him of that. But I thought I'd read that just for a little, uh, you know, passage about Trump. So you mentioned earlier the idea that some of the opinions that Henry has now mm. sound a bit sort of mm. distant because there's been a sort of, mm. hopefully, a reordering of, you know, society and the relationships between men and women. That's obviously an ongoing thing. Also, the fact that, I guess one of the reasons because of like social media and stuff, the transgender community is a lot more visible mm. and a lot more mainstream now. Um, and so I wonder if, for those reasons... Is this an auspicious time for this book to be coming out? Why Why are we re-releasing this book now, 20 years later? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think in some ways, I hope, as you said earlier, that the book in, could be timeless, you know, and, you know, and hopefully the, the transgendered community has made great strides because I think for a lot of people, the only way for them to transition, at least, you know, or they were told was, to unfortunately to prostitute themselves that this was a way that they could pay for surgeries or for you know hormone treatment or these sorts of things and maybe because they were so pushed to the fringe that this was the only life they thought they could lead for themselves but in terms of why it's coming out 20 years later pushkin has been wonderful to me they released my novel wake up sir which is very much an homage to pg woodhouse and it had never and that book had come out in 2004 and it had never been published in England. And I was so excited that somehow they found it, wanted to publish it. And uh, and then they published my thriller, You Were Never Really Here. And then I think they were looking through my other books and they're like, oh, we love The Extra Man. And in many ways, The Extra Man is a thematic prequel to my novel, Wake Up, Sir. In Wake Up, Sir, the narrator is working on a book called The Walker. And so I guess they felt like, oh, they're... There was a readership for Wake Up, Sir. Perhaps there'll be a readership for The Extra Man. And so I'm, I'm just delighted that they brought it out. I don't think they necessarily brought it out because of changing times or anything like that, but just um, out of the kindness of their publishing hearts. <laughs> but do you think if you wrote this today, it would be would it be the same book? Um, well, it, I guess I don't often do well with hypothetical questions, yes, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, you know, because it was very much of the time. You're a different person my, my, you Right. My observations then, that New York doesn't exist. You know, Times Square is just basically Disney and the Lion King and, you know, uh, bright lights and chain stores. Back then it was peep shows and street preachers. So I imagine it, it would be quite different. But like you said, we all change so much. Like, I don't remember writing this book. I don't know who I was. I'm like, oh, my God, this is a long book. I must have been sitting for hours. and But such fun dialogue, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, it's uh, I sort of forget my books after they're done. They're like photo albums that you don't open anymore. We mentioned that a number of the things that happen in this book are experiences of your own. And, mm. and I wanted to talk about the sort of autobiographical element of your writing more generally. Mm. I, mm. I say autobiographical with, you know, mm. invisible inverted commas around it. The, the main mm. character of Bored to Death was mm. called Jonathan Ames, mm -hmm. although that wasn't, you know, wasn't necessarily an autobiographical 
story. Um, I mean, I'd even, at a push, say that Lewis Ives sounds a bit like Jonathan Ames. Mm-hmm. So what is it about that, the sort of idea of using sort of autobiographical elements across your work that appeals to you? Yeah, well, I think in many ways I've shifted as I've gotten older and I use myself less as a character. Like my most recent book, You Were Never Really Here, was written in the third person and it was a thriller. But yes, starting with my first novel back in 1989, through Bored to Death, which finished in 2011. Um, so we're talking about 20 years there where I really mined myself as a character. I also had uh, a column in the New York press where I turned myself into a character. And I think at that time in my life, you know, the writers that appealed to me or the ones, you know, Jack Kerouac, when I read him at 17, made me want to be a writer. And he seemed to be writing autobiographically. Uh, later Bukowski, you know, maybe even Hemingway. or And I was trying maybe to understand myself unconsciously. So I very much used myself as a character for many years. And one of the things that Fitzgerald had a quote where he said something like he saw his the characters in his books as his brothers. There was his older brother. There was the lost brother. I've always seen my characters as kind of cousins. We share a lot of DNA, though they're not necessarily me. Like in my essays, it was sort of an exaggerated version of me. Lewis Ives, the narrator of this book, is much more a feat and maybe passive and gentle than I am. But we share many traits, and I did draw upon my life. And it's, I guess, the old thing, it's what I knew And I was trying to understand myself. Freud also, I think, wrote somewhere that all of writing is confession. So maybe I was trying to confess. Maybe I was trying to accept myself. But it was also fodder. And then also readers, sometimes I realize as a reader myself, you wonder, did the writer experience this? You know, was this really their life? You know, did Sylvia Plath, was she like the young woman in the bell jar? You know, like we have this desire to sort of know the author behind these works of fiction. So later on in my career, like with Bored to Death, which was based on a fictional short story, but I wrote it in the form of my essays so that people would be like, did this really happen? But it was made up. I didn't put an ad on Craigslist and become a detective. But part of the reason I did that, I'll try to say this quickly, is when I would write my nonfiction, people would say, Oh, you made that up. That really didn't happen. You know, one of my famous essays was, I shit my pants in the south of France. But they might they might believe that happened. But a lot of times they were like, you made that up. And I'm like, no, it's, it really happened. It's nonfiction. And then when I would write my fiction, they'd go, why didn't you call it a memoir? You know, it's clearly you. And so I couldn't win. When I wrote nonfiction, they said I was making it up. When I wrote fiction, they said it was memoir. So with Bored to Death, the short story, I thought, you know what, I'm going to really play around with that. And I'm going to write it in the form of one of my essays, but make it up. And uh, and then it became a TV show. And I did draw upon myself. The Jonathan character dresses like me, lives where I lived. But I tended to speak a bit more through the Ted Danson character because he was closer to where I was in life, a little bit older. But, yeah, it was for a big part of my life I drew upon myself. And then and then I became uh, – I grew to have less of a stomach for it. I, I wanted to be more hidden. In my TV show, Blunt Talk – I kind of spread myself amongst many characters. I I didn't want to call as much attention to myself. The wish to draw upon myself really lessened. I think I became more um, private in a way. 
Um, I also did a graphic novel in which the character was named Jonathan A. So anyway, it was a big stretch of my writing career. And so now, now in some ways I'm learning to write again. You know, is it third person? What is my subject matter? You know, um, I don't know if I can keep drawing upon myself in the same way. You mentioned Craigslist and its, um, mm. its sort of role in that in that series. Mm. And um, one of the joys of this book is um, is Lewis, you know, reading the small ads in the in the mm. back of the newspaper for all yeah. the sort of like odd sort of like sexual services that he's mm. looking for. And of course, that's, you know, a world that really the Internet has, has sort of taken away. You know, I can mm. remember first moving to London and sitting in a cafe with a with a newspaper looking at the small ads for, for apartments. Right, you know? right. And again, which is now something that that all of those papers seem to have seem to have disappeared. And there's something I don't know. I mean, it may just be me, but it seems something more romantic for finding your um, what's she called the um, the, uh, the, the recession the, spankologist, the, the recession spankologist in the back of a newspaper rather yeah. than on Google. Yeah, I mean, I you know, for those of us born sort of pre-internet, it it does feel like I don't know if the word's romantic. I think we're all a little bit sentimental for. You know, I used to write for one of those newspapers, and I wrote for the New York Press, which was like the Village Voice. It would come out once a week, but in both those papers, all the young people of New York, they would find their apartments or use bicycles or roommates, and then there would be, behind all those ads, then would be the odd sex ads, you, you know, and it was a... The Internet has really changed things. It's uh, obviously, you know, deeply affected print and books and magazines and newspapers everyone's staring at their phones and and it's uh it's having an impact on culture and society and we see the you know deleterious impact on politics and uh it's you know we're really shifting now change is inevitable but it's it's scary the change i don't know if you were, ever saw the movie the jerk with uh, Steve, Steve Martin. Well, you know, it was kind of amazing. Like, he invents those those glasses that won't slide down your nose. And they're the big hit. And then slowly it turns out everyone has gone cross-eyed. Well, I feel that way when I look... You know, I was in a cab coming over here in London. And, you know, 50% of the people are looking down at their phones. It makes me think of the jerk. You know, because this the biggest hit ever is really the iPhone, or one of the biggest, and the Internet. But what is it doing to the human brain? You know, and we're sometimes I'll hold my phone at night, just hold it in my hand. And I'm not a big social media person as if the phone can give me something because it is giving us something. It's giving us these little endorphin hits. They've designed them to please us. And um, so anyway, that's a tangent. But I think uh, this is a slightly, you know, this captures a romantic time. And yet it was only, you know, I wrote this book 20 years ago. And yet the means of communicating and where you learn things completely different than it is now. Well, you just reminded me there, even the village voice is gone. Yeah. So I, I talked a, a lot about this in my TV show, Bored to Death, because, you know, the writing was on the wall. You know, I have the Ted dancing character saying things like, print is dead. You know, it, I'm so glad we're talking about books. And the books seem to be holding on. People still, literally, they like to hold on to a book. They like to be able to turn a page. I've never read a book on a Kindle or a computer or a phone, but um, there was something about the way people re retain information, maybe because they were raised turning pages. I don't know, but, you know, hopefully the book will hold on, or maybe it'll go the way so many things go. I mean, the whole 
civilizations have gone, you know, in South America that were fantastic and, you know, eras in China and, you know, just things do come to an end. Everything does. Um, just one more question from me then, and then I'll get you to, mm. to read another bit to finish mm. us off. And it's not about a book, um, so mm. or tangentially, I, mm. I guess it is. Mm. I saw um, Lynn Ramsey's adaptation of You Were Never Really Here earlier mm. this year, and like months ago, and still I think is probably the best film I've seen this year. I absolutely, oh, thank you. absolutely adored it. And, and I just wanted to know, obviously as someone who's made TV, I don't know to what extent your involvement in that film was, but what's it like for you to have somebody else and especially somebody with such a, you know, distinct artistic vision mm-hmm. adapt your work. Yeah, well, it was just an honor to have her make the film. Um, I did work with her for about two years leading up to the filming. Uh, she would send me drafts of the script and I would give her my notes and thoughts. I don't know if, how influential they were, but I think I was a good sounding board and made her feel less alone with the project because this was taking on something new, like a thriller um, because I had also stressed to her that I had written the book to be sort of a an entertainment in kind of the Graham Greene sense, like, you know, a page turner, yet hopefully a page turner with some depth and literary value. But I, I wanted the film to still be gripping the way a page turning novel was. And I th- and she very much took that to heart and yet also made it, you know, a very Lynn Ramsey esque meditation. And she's just such a strong cinematic filmmaker you know creating incredible images and how she ties it all together like like a poem um so i was just honored that she took my novel and made this other unique piece of art from it so yeah and i was on set a little bit and got to meet joaquin phoenix who plays the lead and uh yeah just uh very proud of what she did can i get you to finish it off with another selection yeah um well here's another domestic uh, scene from the two of them. Uh, Lewis has just made some food and their whole apartment is overrun with cockroaches and fleas and mice and so uh, Lewis has just made a plate of spaghetti. He put it down on the counter, turned his back and when he turned back to it there's a cockroach on it. When I came back to the kitchen there was a cockroach in the middle of my spaghetti. Oh God there's a cockroach on my food I bellowed. What? said Henry, a cockroach on top of my spaghetti. You forgot the first rule of survival in this apartment, said Henry, without sympathy. Never leave food out. You didn't teach me that rule, I said. You should have learned it before coming here. Don't enlist in the military if you're not prepared to fight. I threw the pasta away and the cockroach, since I am unable to kill anything directly, even cockroaches, with which our apartment was infested, though none had ever been so brave as to mount my food. After dumping the pasta, I boiled some more water and started all over. Henry from his couch told me to wash my dish and added that I should always wash my dishes before eating. He explained to me, teaching me some survival rules after all, that our cockroaches were walking all over our plates while we slept, leaving behind an invisible trail of germs. So we were to wash our dishes before eating as well as after, He came into the kitchen and rinsed a plate to demonstrate his special two-step method. First hot water to get rid of the cockroach germs, he said. Then coal to get rid of the lead from the hot. Otherwise you die. New York has lead in its hot water. That you might not have learned in New Jersey. Henry looked at me intently to make sure that I understood the lesson. And then he said, hot for cockroach, 
cold for lead. Hot for cockroach, cold for lead. I got it, I said. Well, don't catch on too quickly. That's the problem with staff. Once they know what to do, they leave. It was a backhanded compliment, but it made me feel good. He didn't want me to leave. So I've been talking to Jonathan Ames. We've been talking about the re-release of his novel, The Extra Man, in the UK from Pushkin Press. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. Oh, thank you. Thank you for a really nice conversation. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.